0: The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. To me, the spiritual is the most real part of life. It's the inner dimension of life. It's how it's the part of us that knows we're connected to something more than ourselves.
1: Welcome to the Mentor TV podcast and stay curious with Patricia Falco Beccani. Welcome back to another edition of COVID-19 from Crisis to Creation here on Mentorit TV. I'm Patricia Falco bekali your host. Do you sometimes feel that life has just become too complicated, just too much, even crazy, and that even before the onset of COVID-19, that pandemic that is raging through the world? I mean, switch on the news and all you see is news clips about disasters, be it floods, be it wildfires, demonstrations, pro-democracy demonstrations, um, racism, you see anti-Semitism, you see Korea trying to be a nuclear power, you're seeing Brexit, you're learning that there will be more microplastic in the sea than fish by 2050. And I could go on and on and on. Mad times, a lot of things we cannot influence. And so it becomes very frustrating. The CDC and other institutions gave out uh, studies saying that depression, anxiety, hopelessness, uh, the willingness to just run away and kick it all in or blow your lid is going up uh, in an exponential manner, especially since COVID-19. Well, how do we deal with it? Positive thinking may just not be enough. Perhaps there are other tools to keep us sane in our crazy times. I have so many questions, and this is why I invited Philip Goldberg. He is one of the spiritual leaders on the globe to the show. He wrote more than 25 books, and his latest book, Spiritual Practices for Crazy Times, is exactly the key I would like to kind of investigate about and ask whether this is going to really give us answers to keep our calm and cool and relaxedness in these times. Phil, thank you so much for being with us here on Mentorate TV.
0: Great to be with you, Patricia.
1: Phil, well, you know, the first thing I really would like to kick our conversation off is a quote, and I have a little screen share. Allow me to share this with you and um, the audience And read it out loud. Okay. In a world in which fear, worry, and uncertainty can hijack our thoughts, overtake our emotions, cloud our inner vision, and poison our perception of what's happening in the world around us, spiritual practice for crazy times offers the antidote. It teaches us how to be in the world but not of it michael bernard backwith he's the founder of agape international spiritual center he said that phil and the reason why i wanted to start with this quote is very very simple i would like to know what you actually mean or what he means by be in the world but not of it
0: you know that's an interesting way to start, Patricia. Um, that actually is a biblical quote, and it's uh, kind of become part of the vocabulary. I don't think most people even know where it comes from. I hear, you know, secular people say it—people you know, who have nothing to do with religion or spirituality. But it's a—it's a It evokes a kind of image of somebody. Who is engaged in the activities of the world, performing their duties, living up to their responsibilities, taking life seriously, but at the same time remaining somehow inwardly removed. Not indifferent, not uncaring, but just having. Uh, a a station, an inward station, an identity that um, evokes the spiritual dimension of life that we all have. We're all individuals, we're all people, human beings, different from one another, with different uh, sets of destiny and cause and effect and what we do and how we behave in the world but we're also um spiritual beings engaged in this human activity and that spiritual part of ourselves is what that quote calls us to
1: Okay, so you're talking about a certain sense of detachment. so you are in the world, but you don't necessarily have to go emotionally with it, be it in a, in a especially in a negative way i e rage. When you talk about spiritual dimension, Phil, you, you know let's define it a little bit for those people that might not necessarily know that much about spirituality. How come, a, what is a spiritual? dimension what is spirituality and why do you say that everybody has that
0: I use the term spiritual in a very practical way. To me the spiritual is the most real part of life. It's the inner dimension of life. It's how it's the part of us that knows we're connected to something more than ourselves that recognizes interconnection that recognizes even in a secular way. I know people who are, for example, scientists, and they have a sense of awe and wonder about the world because of their uh, scholarly inquiries. And, and they look up at the night sky and they see the vastness of the universe and the mysteries that science has, will never answer, despite all of its advances, the big questions of life. And they have a sense of that they're part of something vast and, and huge. Einstein had it, Newton had it, all the great scientists have it. So to me, there's nothing otherworldly about spirituality. It's a recognition of the, the interconnectedness and that we are not just separate individuals, but we are part of something, uh, this web of existence, so to speak. And there's a non-physical dimension to this. That's why the word spiritual.
1: Yes. And if you had to pinpoint it, how would you say is, or what would you say is the difference between religion, religious practices, and spiritual practices?
0: Yeah, well, they overlap to a certain degree. I mean, uh, there's a phenomenon in the last generation or so of people increasingly identifying with the term spiritual but not religious. It's a new term, but it's a very, very old phenomenon. Here in America, uh, you know, people like Ralph Waldo Emerson, they didn't use that term, but they were sort of the founding fathers of being spiritual but not religious. It, it's a, it means the separation has to do with religion being uh, something we think of as inst. Part of an institution, a tradition, uh, something that, you know, an ism, a belief system, um, a a tradition you're usually born into or convert to that has a certain uh, certain doctrines, certain worldviews, certain points of view and rituals and so forth. Many, many people don't want to limit themselves to one. And they, they want to explore all the world's traditions. Or they don't like the organized part of religion. So they disidentify with religion, but they have a deep spiritual life. They recognize there's something more to life, and they want to explore that. They want to explore uh, the, the deepest dimensions of who we are and how we're connected to the universe. And so they engage in perhaps practices like meditation, or yoga, secularized forms of, of mindfulness and prayer. Uh, and they, uh, so they might either explore the different aspects of all the world's religions or identify with one but not think of themselves as religious or have nothing to do with the r- religious traditions and engage in practices that feed their soul and, and uh, improve their lives and most of those practices have roots in the, in the uh, mystical traditions of the world.
1: Yeah, no, thank you very much for clarifying that and giving a little bit of a, of a direction because a lot of people still think spirituality is something, uh, well, whatever, esoteric, kind of voodoo voodoo. Um, and the only way in order to be a believer is to be actually part of a certain religion. And so this is really
0: important that... And, and I will add to that because you use the word believer one of the key differences, one of the key reasons people identify with the word spiritual and the word religion is usually in, in the realm of spirituality, it doesn't matter what you believe in. You're not asked to believe in something as a matter of faith. You're asked to engage in practices that will improve your life and uh, have predictable results, and so uh, it's the absence of dogma that allows that encourages people to identify with spiritual as opposed to religious
1: yes yes um, yeah absolutely and a lot of people also speak about spirituality really being something from within and religious being something that is you know something that is rather imposed but I don't want to get too much into details because I'm not religious. So (laughs) my knowledge. Neither am I. Yeah. (laughs) My knowledge about actually practicing or those that do practice with all due respect is very limited. And this is why um,
0: I don't want to. But we should uh, also add, Patricia, if I may, that there's also overlap. There's, you know, many people identify with a religion, feel deeply connected to a religion, have a very rich spiritual life. Uh, and, and, and so there's people who say, but I'm spiritual and religious. And that's another category of, that we should honor and respect.
1: Absolutely. When I read your book, um, Chapter 5, I stumbled over a couple of very interesting quotes, and both of them are by Dr. Jill Balter-Taylor. She is a neuroscientist. Uh, yeah. Um, the first one is on page 155 in your uh, chapter five. And she says, I may not be in total control of what happens in my life, but I certainly am in charge of how I choose to perceive my experience. And I may add, chapter five is called changing your mind, working with perception, Framing and attitude. Tell us what she actually means that I choose to perceive my experience, and it's up to me how I figure about <clears throat> what's happening around me.
0: Doctor, T- I quoted Doctor Taylor uh, because she has a very popular I, uh, um, video on online. Uh, she had neurological damage. She's a neurological. She's a scientist brain scientist, and <clears throat> what she means, what she, uh, the reason I quoted her is a lot of people, philosophers, religious people, like, uh, thousands of years ago, the great yoga uh, sages wrote about this, how we frame something. The event can be, can be the same, but two different people will perceive it in a different way, react to it in a different way, and frame it mentally, cognitively in a different way, and they will therefore respond to it differently. And each of us will perceive situations differently at different times. And to a certain extent, we have control over that. Um, and, and there's you know, vast numbers of people have written about this, but now there's scientific data Uh, that Dr. Taylor and others have found that when you do, when something occurs and it's it's upsetting, it it shakes you up, you're you're caught up in fear or anger or rage or, you know, whatever it is, if you can just not react in that moment, because if we do, we often make mistakes and do things we regret. <clears throat> if you remember to just pause, and if you just feel the physical sensations that are going on, it, the loop that they talk about usually passes within 90 seconds.
1: Yeah, so interesting that she actually <laughs> put it down to 90 you can,
0: seconds. Yeah, well, you when can... You're now,
1: lost, but you are through it.
0: <laughs> you can now do brain studies that show it. And, and so when, when things calm down a little, you can then reframe what, it, what is taking place. And sometimes you can do it almost instantaneously, depending on the uh, intensity of the emotion that kicks up. But if you see a, a situation in a more positive light, or even a more realistic light, because often the initial reaction is not very realistic at all. The fear may be for good reason, but, um, and the anger may be for good reason. But then reframing it will allow, not only allow you to uh, respond in a more effective way, in a less um, destructive way, but it will have less damage on you physically. If the, if, if the anger persists, if the fear persists, um, it, has a, it kicks off biochemical responses, uh, that famous flight-fight response that, that does damage to our system and leads to stress-related diseases. Whereas if you reframe it cognitively, in an, in an appropriate way, a different physiological reaction sets in and it also allows you to have a better perspective and act in a way that is usually more productive than the you know, initial rage reaction. And of course, there are emergencies where you have to react instantaneously, but most of our life circumstances aren't like that. When I watch television and uh politician says something that gets me angry i don't need to react in the moment it's not like a you know a a lion jumping at me or you know a a car cutting me off on the road i can reframe it if if uh, my wife says something upsetting if i can just calm down and pause and react you know a little later, I'm more likely to react in a kind and compassionate way, and that's uh, better. So, so now there are scientific data about that.
1: Yeah, and it's it's uh, interesting that she actually adds to that ninety second rule. She not only established but has proven that any remaining emotional response is just the person choosing to stay in that emotional loop of anger of upset, that flight uh, and fight response, uh, basically full of cortisol, which is very, very damaging in the long run. And I think what really just hit with me is, is this word you said, pause. Okay. Well, I've been studying Kabbalah for now almost five years, and that is basically amongst the epicenters of what we do. So the ego tends to react. So something upsetting happens. And your initial reaction is, uh, you want to lash out. You want to be upsetting as much as you were being upset. But the pause, running it through cognition, what you're about to say, or that gut feeling, the ego springing out, is exactly what makes everything then different. Your response different, your feeling different, the situation different. So I think there, you know, the pausing the ego... (laughs) is fundamental to then being able to to react and deal with craziness around you
0: absolutely and and remembering to pause is critical because in the midst of the rage we don't always remember but so it's a habit that can be ingrained in us you know we may f- fail at times I'm, I'm frankly shocked at myself. I've known this for many, many, many years. I do the spiritual practices I write about. And yet there are times... How often
1: do we trip up? Oh, my God. Yeah. And, and so <laughs> I just...
0: I don't show. want to give listeners the impression that this is easy and that, it, you know, you can just, oh, yes, I'll pause. No, you don't always remember. But what does happen is if you are sincere about this and you engage in the other spiritual practices that give you access to some inner calm on a more reliable basis, which is what the book is really all about, then you're more likely to pause and remember, and you're more likely, if you lose it, to recover quickly. And, And then the recover quick, so you don't, you're not... In, in that rage reaction for a long time, it's quick. You then see what's going on. You can pause and reflect. Plus
1: as well, plus as well, Phil. This is my experience. If you have this knowledge and that tool of pausing, because it really is a tool, it, then if you made the mistake and you were not spiritual as you should have been, you are much faster in not only recuperating but saying sorry. You know, just admitting hea culpa, which a lot of people just cannot do. Again, the ego question.
0: Right. But, you you know, when it happens, you don't want to feel guilt and shame because you, you somehow messed up. No, this is just part of being human. And we have to be kind to ourselves. When we when we don't live up to 100 percent to our oh,
1: an expectation, absolutely. Well, you know, uh, Michelle Obama. It was one of my favorite quotes, and it's also being quoted uh, in your book, Phil. Um, she says something along the line: "When they go low, we go high." So don't let yourself uh, be dragged down to a lower, you know, more reptile level of responding to whatever comes along.
0: <clears throat> and that's. You know, that instinctive response to meet fire with fire and get revenge and all that, that, you know, that works in a boxing ring. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, it, it doesn't. but even there, you know, I think I, I said that in a flip way, but even there, you know, the athletes, combat, you know, competitive athletes know that losing your cool is not a good thing when you're engaged in your sport it's the it's the players the athletes who are able to retain some inner calm when the pressure's on they're the ones that the team relies on they're the ones who don't lose their cool the same thing in a boardroom or you know for the police or you know a, a mother or anybody else
1: Yeah, and I'm happy you mentioned, you know, the entire dimension where you really have to apply, be able to apply those tools. And I think golf is really one of those sports where inner calmness and keeping the cool (laughs) is really so fundamental to you hitting the ball.